If you listen to this podcast and follow what we do at Troutbitten, then you're a thoughtful angler, and you don't accept the status quo simply because that's how it's always been done. Squall of Fishing designs and creates fly fishing apparel with this same philosophy. Squalla was started by a group of lifelong fly anglers who spent their careers working for some of the biggest names in the outdoor industry, and they understood that essential fly fishing apparel like waders, jackets, sun gear, and insulation could simply be better. So now, Squalla makes gear for us, the like-minded few, serious anglers who don't take themselves too seriously. Check them out at squallafishing.com. Water is essential for life, but for Orvis, it's the blood of the brand. Orvis has been the leader in fly fishing since 1856. No other brand can match the explorative and innovative spirit they bring to the water today. Everything at Orvis is about inspiring and empowering adventure and wonder in nature. Rooted in the vitality of fly fishing, fueled by passion and curiosity for the outdoors, Orvis designs and develops products and experiences providing the knowledge and expertise to enable more meaningful moments and connections in nature. With over a century and a half of experience in the field and on the water, Orvis seeks to ignite that passion in others. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Yeah, Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. It's about trout. Wild trout. This is Trout Bitten. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Dominic Swintoski. I'm the owner of Trout Bitten and the author of TroutBitten.com. Welcome to episode three of season five. We're here to talk about spooky trout. What spooks fish? What puts them down? And how can we avoid all that and put fish in the net? So we'll get to that discussion in a moment. But first, this Trout Pitten podcast has been rolling along for a year now, a full year. And last week's episode was number 50. I'm proud of what we've built in that short time uh, because I love creating things that will outlast me. And I know that the content in these conversations has offered many anglers some additions and some reflections for their own life on the water. And that's what's most important. That is success to me. The Troutbitten Podcast continues to be the top-ranked fishing podcast on the charts. And those kinds of stats open the doors to the ad buyers, uh, the brands that you hear within these episodes. That, too, is a big deal because revenue from those ads is what allows me to set aside time every week to put this podcast together. The whole thing works out. So thank you to the companies that make this Troutbitten Podcast possible. And thank you for supporting those brands. Use those discount codes that they provide. Or just drop them a line and, and tell them you appreciate their being part of the Trout Pitten Project. So cheers, friends, and thank you again. So the Trout Pitten crew is here with me tonight, and I can't thank them enough either. Because these conversations are something I look forward to every week. With a life that is busier than ever, this hour or so that we set aside to talk about fishing is an enjoyable respite from all other responsibilities. It's also a chance to hear insights from these guys and to pick their brains about what they see on the water and how they solve problems. And I think we all learn a lot every week. All right, tonight's episode is about spooking trout, or really how not to spook trout. But first, let me introduce my fishing friends and ask each of them a question that you've sent in. Keep those questions coming. 
and we'll work some of them into these season five episodes. Right, Josh? You got it. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> All right. Nailed it. All right. So here's Matt Grobe. Mr. Matt, how are you? I am doing fantastic. Feels nice. good to be back after my uh, hiatus last week. <laughs> Missed last week. We won't talk about it. HIPAA rules. It's sad. Policy. Yeah, it's it's sad, you know, listening to it on my drive into work and and I'm like, oh, I would have commented this. Oh, or I would have commented that. Those guys don't know anything. Those dummies. Yeah. <laughs> no, you guys did killer. You did you did good on that that whole thing. And I think the the general consensus with everyone is if you want to be a, an above average angler, mm-hmm. you know, it I, I I'm all in on that. You, you should learn how to tie flies. I think it's yeah. it's not the easiest thing to do, but it's a necessity if you want to take your game up to that next level. And I thought you guys did a really good job of covering everything. You know, the one one thing I had thought about from a fly tying standpoint yeah. that I end up altering out here, and I didn't do it back home, was flashier. I've been adding, like, flashy uh flashback or pearl tinsel because yeah. of the species it goes back to the whole species thing because i get to target rainbow trout and there's for whatever reason they like dumb flashy nymphs and so when i'm tying <laughs> where you guys may be tying i know austin you had mentioned you tie less flash into it and i think that is smart for weary picky brown trout hmm. But if you are targeting wild rainbow trout, it's just something you can consider, you know, throwing a little flash in that doll pattern might not work as good for rainbows, you know, as a, as a flashy one might. So, um, so that's why you catch so many fish because <laughs> no, you, cause you get the easy ones. Yeah, yeah that's right. There's no, there's no denying it. I mean, there's. You get three different species of wild fish in the river system. and One wild uh, brown counts for like three rainbows, dude. It does. 100%. 100%. Is that all? I'd give it more value than that. Well, that's because we're here in PA and all of yeah. our rainbows, almost yeah. all of our yeah, rainbows true. are stocked. Yeah. So it's like right. five to one. I tried telling a client that the other day and he's like, what? 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 <laughs> I said, it's a stocked <laughs> rainbow. It looks perfect. I said, I know, but it was stocked from down below. It swam up above. It was probably a fingerling and it, it you know, it came up here. Mm-hmm. Man, that's a nice fish though. I said, yep. There you go. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Congratulations. It's one, it's one fifth, a nice fish. <laughs> one fifth of a fish. Good for you. Uh, Matt, I do have a question for you. This is from another Matt. You okay with that? I, I like it. Let's go. All right. We do uh, I do have a lot of questions coming in. Here's your question from Matt Rapier uh, in Colorado. Uh, another Matt. And he says, guys, I know you fish two nymphs a lot, and many, as many of us do. And you run that top fly from a tag with the heavier fly at the bottom or on the point. So, rigged this way, what percentage of your trout hit the upper nymph? So, I think that's a good question. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people have that question. Um, right. I would say for, for me personally, I would have to, to give you a straight answer. I'd have to break it down seasonally. And I would say mm-hmm. from April to October, I would go 60, 40 for me personally. Tag. And, and a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, today I fished today. I got yeah. to fish five hours today and I say, I'd say it was 80, 20. And I attribute that to 
you know, it's, it is a little harder to get that second fly down, uh, rolling on the bottom. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you tag it 18 inches above your point or 12 inches above your point during the buggiest of the seasons, I think fish are more, um, apt to coming and swiping at a moving fly or up a little bit in the water column. Cause you know, f- bugs are emerging and, yeah. and they're starting to hatch. And so you, I think personally for me, I get more action during that time. And then when we get into the slower months where fish yeah. really get lethargic and, and start hammering the bottom, I definitely say 80, 20, 80% to 20%, um, at that point, And I almost, always start tractor trailer and um small Mm. flies during winter because i really want to be on the bottom um and so for me matt that's kind of my general uh percentage breakdown for for tags i don't know about what do you guys think yeah that's how i'd feel i'd have to answer it too if you go for a full year okay it almost might be 50 50 for me or probably 60 40 uh rather uh point fly 60 and maybe 40% 40% on the tag if I took a whole year. But as you said, it can be dramatically different for the seasons. That matters. And when, you, when sure. everything's eating my tag, it tells me something. Not only the fly that they're eating, okay, cool. But what position are they eating? And then you try to figure out why and how does that correlate with the water that you're fishing. And sometimes it means they're actually kind of eating on the drop too. Yeah, all those things are, it's just good data, you know? For sure. All right, here's Josh Darling. How you doing, brother? Real good, man. Good to be here. Yeah. Best part of my week. Yeah, I know. Hey, here's a question from Alex M. Just an M. Let's hear it. Just an M. I'm not using last names with Alex. On Instagram. Uh, <laughs> Dom, your podcast has been a lifesaver for me. Well, that's nice. And I've learned a lot. But I but think that makes videos, you feel good. It does, right? It makes me feel like I got a little warm spot there in my chest. Mm-hmm. But I think the videos are my favorite. What a resource! Exclamation point. Does that no, make that you? makes me feel good? Right, a little now, warm. Now spot. I feel warm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We're, hey, we're having a moment, Austin. <laughs> Enough with Just, the warm spots. No. All right. Okay. Will you ask Josh Darling something for me? Question mark. How important is 4K? I am creating Mm. some YouTube videos for myself, and I just wonder if it's worth the effort to film and upload in 4K. Thanks to Mm. all. Before you answer it, I will say, nobody needs to go through me to ask Josh anything, right? Wildsmedia.com, also uh, Wildsmedia on Instagram and other places. Josh, will you answer the 4K question, which I have asked you myself? Yeah, you have. We so we kind of just switched over in the last few videos to uploading in 4K on on YouTube. Yeah, you did. Yeah, that that's not a super easy question to answer just outright. So I'll, I guess I'll give you my thought process, and you can kind of make the decision for yourself. It it really it comes down to what you're wanting to use it for. And you mentioned that your application would be YouTube. And first off, almost everybody watches YouTube on their phones, and you can't see 4K on a phone. And uh, even when you, if you are watching it on your desktop or on your laptop or something like that, almost nobody hits full screen. And, and so in addition to that, YouTube compresses everything. And so mm-hmm. the 4K that you're seeing when you're watching on YouTube is not true 4K. And so it's very different than if you were shooting for, you know, a, a Netflix documentary or something. It's, um, but there's also extra cost built into to shooting 4K. Like you yeah. need to have a camera that can handle it. 
first off, you need to have a camera that's not going to overheat or anything. You need to have a camera that's that has an autofocus that's built to handle 4K. Right plus. on. You also need a lot more storage space, and so that that's expensive. You need uh, a computer that is. Mm. Most computers that can actually edit 4K were built to do that, and so mm. generally that's an additional, uh, pretty sizable cost that you're going to have to eat. Um, there's definitely benefits, like Dom, you kind of mentioned at the beginning of this episode that you want to make things that are going to outlast you. And the reason mm. that I'm shooting and, and uploading in 4K is because in five years I don't want to be outdated. Like I want these videos to. It it feels a little bit like I'm like future proofing these videos. Yeah. Because in five years, I don't know if we're even going to be talking about HD, you know, 1080p stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big reason that I choose to shoot and upload in 4K. Um, there's other practical things. Like if you're shooting on your own and you don't have a second shooter who's capturing movement and wider angles and stuff, right. you can shoot in wider angles and then you can crop in and add creative movement in post that you could not do. You're going to be downsampling an actual image quality because then you're going to be if you export in 4K, you're going to be sizing that stuff up and it's mm-hmm. not going to be true 4K. But again, on YouTube, nobody's ever going to notice that because it's got to be 95% of YouTube watchers are watching on their phone mm-hmm. and you're not going to see 4K on the phone. So, you know, it's it's stuff to think about. There's not one right answer. Having all that data with 4K allows you to do things as an editor too, right? For that sure. You wouldn't yep. be, like you say, the crop in... Exactly. You can add movement that you couldn't add. Like you can take a static frame and you can add Mm -hmm. movement by zooming or panning, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's cool stuff. I wanted to hear you talk about that because I, you know, I've asked you those questions. I've, and it's taken me a while to understand all those things too. And I do just a very little bit of video editing myself, learning a lot from you. And yeah, you're the guy to ask. I didn't realize how much went into it. Like you say about the cost, that's, that's it. And you name yeah, it gets what, a lot like harder. Five, yeah, like five different things where the cost adds up. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, dude. Good answer. For sure. Hey, uh, here's Austin Dando. And I say it like, meh, here he is, you know. All right. <laughs> <laughs> here he is. Here he is. Uh, this question comes from email again, and it's from Manny Ryder in Washington, D.C. It's our nation's capital, Austin. Okay. Not a fan? Not a fan of the Capitol? <laughs> you an anarchist? <laughs> nothing. 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 I can't get anything from him. I've never been asked that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't think I was, but now that you mention it. Hmm. All right. Nation's Capital. Coming in from the Nation's Capital. Hey, Troutbit and crew. Thanks for what you do. That's you guys, right? Love the website and all the other content. I thought you might answer this short question on your podcast. That's this. If you have time, and we do, why do trout eat a fly one day but won't eat it again the next day in the same section of river at the same time with the same water levels? Austin, you have the hardest question in fishing. Ready, go. (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say, if I knew the answer to this question, man, I'd have like a secret to life that no one else did. (laughs) Um (laughs) You could claim uh, many things to be the answer to this. Um, You could say, well, it has to do with the moon, or it has to do with barometric pressure, or it has to do with, uh, you know, unforeseen weather conditions that we cannot perceive or or anything underwater we cannot perceive. But really, I don't know if that's a 
the the right question to ask most days. Okay. If we go back to a stream that we previously had success on the day before and today it's not working or, you know, yesterday they really loved pheasant tails, but now they're not eating them anymore. Why not? Yeah. I don't know why, <laughs> but what I would urge the angler to do is to just cycle through tactics and cycle through flies until you find what does work and not get hung up on exactly why. And you may find that whatever ends up being what they're feeding on answers the question for you. And that answer changes every single day and it's never going to be the same. That's kind of the fun part, I think. I remember uh, talking to Steve Sawenski when I was real young in the fly fishing game. He owned Fly Fisher's Paradise at the time. And he said, Dom, I just cycled through, we were talking about nymphing. He said, I just cycled through my handful of uh, nymphs and see what they'll eat that day. And for him, it was like a crest bug and a hare's ear and a pheasant tail, um, maybe a couple others. Yeah. He just kind of shrugged his shoulders. I like what you said, not getting too hung up on why. The answers might kind of come, or theories might come to you. I would say, too, don't try to force it. If they ate it yesterday, you're going to, sure, you're going to start with it. But if they don't eat yep. it and you're getting good presentations, then you trust yourself and you go to that next pattern in the box or you go to that next tactic in your bag of tricks. You know, Matt, you got something? You're, you look, uh, you look like you want to say something. Well, just I want to chime in one thing because I think sometimes yeah. we as a group take where we're fishing for granted. You know, I would say to Manny, <clears throat> where are you fishing? Are you fishing delayed harvest stuff within driving distance of DC? And mm -hmm. because that can affect things, right? Because you could be, Manny could be fishing for four trout in a, in mm. one hole and they're stocked fish, right? Where we, we're point. fishing really high density trout waters to where a lot of this stuff applies. And maybe there's 20 fish in the hole and maybe, they're moving from one spot to the next daily. But some folks, if you're just fishing delayed harvest water, I would, I would ask, you, mm -hmm. you know, if you're asking us this question, make sure you understand that if you're fishing a delayed harvest outside of Washington, D.C., I'm making this up, that gets yeah. pounded no, by anglers, yeah. you yeah. know, don't give yourself a little bit of, uh, you know, a break, so to say. Mm -hmm. But know that when we're speaking about this stuff, we're talking about blue ribbon trout waters, wild trout waters that we all are fortunate enough to live by. And so if you can get to something close to you that has wild trout, um, and maybe that could make a difference too. Yeah. Matt brings up other anglers, which is a point we should touch on too. Um, let's say you don't get there at the break of dawn and you don't know if you're the first car in the lot that day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The temperature is the same. The flow is the same. Conditions look identical. But you may have had half a dozen anglers move up through the water that you're just oh, getting yeah. to. Maybe they're gone, but you don't know, and you're confused. That, or you're fishing behind somebody who really put hurting on those uh, <laughs> those fish, even if it is a dense population. It that can really affect your day. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Angler pressure is enormous, and, and like you say, you might not. It's easy to see if the guy's above you, but if he went around the corner, you never saw him around the bend. Right. Yeah. I was on a camping trip with my dad here. My dad said, oh, I'm going to start two hours earlier than you because I had some editing and writing to do. Anyway, I parked in, I parked right in front of my dad. I couldn't go find him, and it ended up that I ended up fishing the exact same water that he did today. And the water's low and clear. And I was like, man, 
these fish are tough. No, I was fishing behind dad and he kind of just ended up to be right in front of me. I'd said, where did you go? And he said, I fished this. I said, that's what I fished. But he was just, it just happened. He was slightly in front of where I could see him. You know, and there's enough <laughs> yeah. bends in the river. And I, I really think that's why my action was slow, or at least it's a good excuse. Well, and it's not just that he like fished really well too. We're going to kind of talk about it tonight. But when you're mm -hmm. working through a spot, yeah, you're spooky going like working into that spot. But mm. as you move on to the next spot, you don't care if you spook every fish in that zone. Right on. And so if you've got somebody in front of you, even just a little bit in front of you, he may have just like fished that really like poorly so that those fish weren't affected. But mm -hmm. when he moves on to that next spot, he's going to spook every fish in that, right. in that hole. You yeah, know? good right. point. Yeah, that is great. And then if he got, you know, if he got hung up in a hole, he goes, ah, I'm going to go get my fly. Mm -hmm. And then he spooks sure, every exactly. fish in there, yeah. right? And then I come in 20 minutes later as he's just around the bend. I'm like, man, these fish are tough. Maybe they weren't that tough. And I wouldn't, good I mean, stuff. I wouldn't want to like follow me up in a hole. And it's not because I'm like fishing well enough to catch every fish in there it's because generally like i fish until i am successful or hang up we've talked about that before mm -hmm. you know and then i go in and get the fly and then i move yeah. on you know yeah i don't want to follow mm -hmm. anybody yeah when i have two anglers especially right now with lower and clearer water if i'm guiding i have two i say hey we are not fishing behind each other we're gonna obviously do the leapfrog thing yeah Precision Fly and Tackle is a family-owned business with a passion for the outdoors and a sense of adventure. They are anglers who enjoy every moment spent on the water with family and friends. Precision Fly and Tackle carries the widest selection of Euro rods, reels, lines, leaders, flies, and accessories. From the beginner to the advanced angler, Precision Fly and Tackle can outfit every angler, no matter the budget. Visit them online at precisionflyandtackle.com. Then use code TROUTBITTEN10, that's the number 10, for 10% off your order. Gear up with Precision Fly and Tackle for your next adventure. For over a decade, Smith Creek has provided innovative, high-quality fly fishing accessories designed to put your gear in easy reach, free up your hands, and keep our waters clean. This November, Smith Creek is releasing two new products just in time for the holidays. Check their website to see the new tippet holder, each unit is individually machined from high-quality billet aluminum and anodized in one of two eye-catching colors. They hold up to five tippet spools with a patented, spring-loaded plunger design that is easy to load and keeps your spools right where you need them. All Smith Creek products are built guide-tough and backed by solid customer service. To learn more about Smith Creek products, visit their website at smithcreek.co. All right, guys, good stuff. Let's dig in. Let's talk about spooking trout. What puts trout down? How long until they recover? How close can you get? And all that kind of stuff. Uh, no one has ever caught a scared trout. I forget who said that to me, but it kind of hit home. And that was a long time ago. Might have been my uncle. A long, long time ago when I was first learning really how to read a trout stream and walk through it, wade, and hopefully not spook trout. And it's a good point that I learned early on and I've always remembered it. No one has ever caught a scared trout. Uh, not too long ago, I published an article on the Trout Pitten website titled The Order of Everything. And it was a rundown of the things you need to do to catch a trout. There are about six or seven items. And that list started with uh, finding fish. And then it continued with don't spook them. Boo. Uh, sounds simple, right? 
And sure, it is simple. Successful fishing is really a series of those simple skills strung together with a little bit of luck thrown in. The article I mentioned makes that point too, but it also acknowledges that if you get anything out of order or mixed up, your chances of catching fish can drop to zero. Again, trout don't eat when they're scared. So if you spook fish, it doesn't matter how good your fly choice and presentation is, you will not catch a fish. Do you guys agree with that? Have you ever caught a scared trout? Am I, am I exaggerating? One time at three in the morning. Dead okay. serious. Yeah, dead Go ahead. serious. Go yeah, ahead, so, so Trevor and I were fishing together. We met up to hike back to where we where the car was. It really was. It was probably three in the morning. And we were crossing the stream to get back to the car. And every once in a while, we'll turn on our headlights because sometimes when you're on the bank and you're fishing at night and you turn on your headlight, you can see... Sometimes they'll surprise fish that are in the shallows and they'll kind of not know what to do and they'll sit there in the in the light. And yeah. we did, I, you know, I turned on my light and there was one right behind like a, or actually right in front of a of a sizable rock. And he's just sitting there in the shallows. And when the light hits them at night, they're not really sure what to do. Sometimes they'll just kind of hang out in place and just sort of like figure out what it is. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, let's see if we can catch him. And uh, Trevor went up behind him, just like walked up. Behind, I mean, like we weren't really, wasn't really sneaky even, but he like put his net behind the fish and I put, my net in front of the fish and he touched his tail and he like freaked out got real scared swam right into my net and i picked him up and it was probably a 22 inch fish 22 inch brown trout <laughs> he was scared and i caught him so <laughs> so it's come to this but based on you know if we just take you know if we just go based on your words then yes I, we've caught a scared fish <laughs> okay into the net you scared him into the net exactly anybody else do that are you ethical or unethical? Not the net. That's 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 pretty impressive. <laughs> I, I think I've I have I think there's been a couple occasions where I've spooked a fish with the sh- initial streamer plunk and have had the fish move yeah in a in a oh, mo- a in a point. way that they were kind of scared but then they were yeah. like oh man that thing's in my territory and they've come back and aggressively attacked. So if that wow. were if that were under the umbrella of spooking, I, I'd mm. say I've seen that happen a few times before. But that would be the only, the only one. That's a really neat point. I think like a lot of animals, and maybe even like us, we can get scared and they go, damn it, I'm not scared. I'm going to go bite, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> or attack it. Do you feel like scaring it into your net wasn't a neat point? Uh, well, it was a different <laughs> Yeah, kind of point. <laughs> okay. It's just a whole different thing. It's a different kind of fishing. Yeah. You should go noodling. It's a different kind of fishing. Yeah. Josh, your story reminds me of uh, I was fishing with Pat Burke and his son, Logan, out in Montana. Nice. Um, yeah. And I watched Logan sneak up behind a trout and catch it with his hands. What? It was, uh, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. He just crept up behind the rocks, reached in, and just pulled the fish out of the water. And we were awestruck. That's caveman stuff. I did that once too. Yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. In in a lake. Wow. Yeah. Weird. We'll we'll get into it. Wow. I've seen some really weird stuff from trout before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the thing. If like if you fish enough, yeah, fish for enough years, and you do it often enough, you're gonna see some crazy things. Right. Like I'd never thought I'd just like catch a trout, a whiskey, in a net. Yeah. You know. It, yeah. You see some crazy stuff if you fish long enough. Yeah, and when you fish at night or when you fish in muddy yeah. water or you reach in to this really predictable spot. There's a guy that works in a local fly <laughs> shop. 
He lives right by one of yeah. our favorite streams. And he says he can go in there and just in the same spot, there's always a trout, reach down in it and kind of, kind of like you're saying, like Logan did, just lift that fish right out of the water. And, yeah, he, uh, uh, right? You know, he this? talk about is either him or a family he knew. Yeah. But uh, they would go down to the bank and they just mm-hmm. shoved their hands underneath the bank into the crest. And slowly, oh, I've heard about slowly, this. Yeah. slowly lift his hands up, and there'd be a <laughs> big brown trout you'd never expect to be in that small stream or small right. part of the stream. It, and and there it is. It sounds hard to believe, and yet I think it's true. I think it's true too. Anyway, that trout is not scared. It doesn't know you're there, right? And so you guys generally agree with me on that. You don't usually catch scared no. fish. Hundred percent. Not on a fly. Oh, you guys have to have your exceptions. Okay. Not on a fly. <laughs> no, but really, I think when we're wading upstream, or even if the boat's coming down at them, or whatever the case is, they're either I, I say it's kind of like they're long gone, or they're tolerating your presence. They might hold their spot, but just because they're there doesn't mean that they're not scared either. But but around here and a lot of places I fish, a lot of times, man, they bolt. They're gone. As soon as they sense that you're there. But yeah, sometimes they, they just kind of stick around. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. For sure. I think um, the hierarchy of trout plays a role in this a little bit. Mm, Some of the yeah. odd things I've seen happen have been on with uh, fingerling fish. And I would say that most of the wild trout, if not all the wild trout streams I've ever fished, the yeah. fish are more spooky without a doubt, than their uh, stocked counterparts. I've seen For some sure. pretty dumb behavior uh, with <laughs> stocked fish. That's a great point. I, uh, I have a memory when I lived in North Carolina. There's a lot of mixed streams, but a lot of stocked rainbows. Yeah. And uh, I caught the same like 15-inch rainbow trout like five minutes apart. Oh, no. Yeah. I, <laughs> I caught it and I'm like, oh, that's, that's fun. That was like a nice fish. And I put it back. I kept fishing, and within a few minutes, I, I caught it again. No way. Yeah. That will teach you such bad things. You know what I mean? Like that just <laughs> teaches you, like, oh, these trout aren't very spooky. But like Matt's saying, the wild ones, and in most natural situations, they really are spooky. And you could come from a different area of the country or a different kind of setup where you're like, well, hey, even if we do spook those trout, they come right back in five minutes. It's okay. Yeah, 100%. There's some situations and places that I've fished and I'll, I'll spot burn one of them and you can beep it if you mm-hmm. want, but the San Juan river in New Mexico beep. is the oddest <laughs> tailwater I've ever fished in the sense that the fish actually follow your feet when you're mm, walking right. because they're conditioned to eat the bugs that you're stepping on. And so it's crazy. that's not normal. It's bizarre, right? Like you're walking through and there's just fish that follow you. So they don't spook. They've acclimated. And why, mm. you know, why is it there's some wild trout reproduction there, but the majority of it, at least it was, was fingerlings. And I'm like, yeah, that has to play into the, yeah, some of this stuff. <laughs> I had an experience out in Montana. We're going to, you know, talking about species here, uh, bull trout, for example, I was fishing a small tributary to a well-known bigger river and, uh, I'd caught a few whitefish kind of one after another. And the first one that came out of this hole, uh, a large bull trout came charging out, uh, mm-hmm. trying to eat the, the whitefish. And I let it go, and it swam back, and the bull trout disappeared again. I caught a second one. The bull trout came charging out again. But this time, mm-hmm. 
instead of swimming away from me, it positioned itself about three feet downstream of me and waited for the next one to come out. And uh, (laughs) that fish was not scared of me. It was using me to its advantage. Wow. And uh, when I went back to my my boss's house, who I I, um, fished with a lot, I told him the story and he says, yeah, that's what we call working on our relationship. Uh, I like it. (laughs) That's like the border collie of trout. It's like the yeah. really, really smart trout. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's a different species. Here's like, that's not something we run yeah. into out here, you know? Like, that's no. But what we do run into out here is stocked trout that will hold in pools. Or often, mm-hmm. you know, they stock them in pools or at the bridge hole, let's say. They throw them in the bridge hole. They'll throw 50 fish in the bridge hole, all stocked rainbows, trout that have been conditioned, really to see human beings as like, hey, food opportunity. Every time that guy walks by, I get fed. You know? hmm. So yeah. they're not necessarily, they're still spooky to a point, but not, not at all like wild trout. And they're not necessarily going to spook just because people are fishing over top of them. And then, so take this to the extreme, and I'll say like Lake Erie steelhead, right? And, and I've done that enough. You guys have all done that. And those steelhead will be in, I don't know, there'll be 30 of them in one hole and they only have certain places where they can go because the water's low. And so they can't just run up to the next hole. It, the, the, the flows in between holes are really low. So those steelhead are kind of forced into just staying there. Like I said, they're not going to bolt. They're just going to kind of hold there. And I remember going up there in my first time being like, wow, these, they just really tolerate your presence. But then I realized like, no, they're not going to eat. Once they know you're there, they're not going to eat for the most part. They just tolerate, well, they don't have anywhere to go. Put it this way. I've often had people say to me, they'll catch a fish right under the rod tip. We're going to talk about distance, how, how, how close you can be to a trout in a little bit. And people will say, wow, I caught him right, right under my rod tip. And I'm like, yeah, because you were behind him and, and, and you weren't spooking him. Okay. And they'll say they really tolerated my presence. Like they, they didn't really care that I was there. Like they didn't know that you were there. So the wild trout, and let's say in most natural situations that aren't a setup, it seems to me anyway, in my experience, those trout will not tolerate your presence. They're out of there. They're gone. Or even if, they, if it's a big dominant trout and it decides to stay there, it's spooked and it's not going to eat. To me, that's two different things. They're either gone or basically if they know you're there, they're not going to eat yeah. if it's a natural situation. I think that they are, in general, when when they're in that state, like when they are, when they know that you're there, they know how to tell whether you've left or not. And I think that they're more patient than we are generally. Like we assume mm. that, like if he's still there, he must not know that I'm there. That's not the case. He's just more patient than you. Like he knows you're there. He's just not going to eat for the next hour and a half. That's you a know. Good point. Yeah, and I think the the water type that you're seeing that happen mm. in is important too because mm. I've never seen, you know, fish in shallow water hang out and tolerate people as much as yeah. I've seen them tolerate yeah. deep, deep buckets, right, where they can hunker down on the bottom and right. you see them, they see you, and they're just, to Josh's <laughs> point, they're just going to hang out and be patient and wait you yeah. out and they're not going to eat. But if you're, you're, not, you're likely not going to see – any of that in a shallow water mm-hmm. setting. Would you guys agree with that? No, that's a great point. Yeah, I agree. Just because they are there and they haven't moved yet doesn't mean they're not spooked. 
Because if it is deeper water, like Matt's saying, they feel like they have, well, this is my best cover that I have. It might not be a river that is full of uh, downed logs and log jams and, and things for them to swim into or a bunch of boulders for them to kind of, you know, get around and up and under. And so maybe they feel like their best chance of being protected is in that deep water that you're looking right into and you go, man, there's three fish in there. Yeah. Just because you can see them doesn't mean they're not spooked. Yeah. I mean, how many times have we like, have all of us seen fish and it's been really evident, like those fish are there Mm -hmm. and we've tried to fish for them and nothing. Like you can float something right under their nose and nothing. And it doesn't mean your presentation's bad. Oh, I've wasted a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've all wasted a lot of time <laughs> doing a lot that. Of time. Yeah. Hey, so what spooks trout? Really, the things that spook trout. What do you think? What sends them running, swimming away? Commotion. I think commotion sends them running. So, like we know that we know that they feel a lot. Like it's not just if they can see you, and it's mm-hmm. not that just if they can hear you. Like if you're being loud, trout have that lateral line, and if you yeah. if you if you're moving a lot if there's a lot of movement in the water we you know we can call it waves we can call it whatever we want but yeah if there's a lot of movement happening in the water i think that they can feel that and if you're not slow and steady it's really easy to spook fish with that yeah for sure that lateral line is a big thing and if you're in fast water that hardly matters at all i don't think. oh it's crazy how how little it matters if you're in fast water how close right? you can get to a fish without them having any idea that you're there and then the opposite is if you're in a really slow pool and for me personally it's hard for me to have the patience that it actually requires for me to not push waves into those fish that i'm fishing for 30 40 or even 50 feet away maybe say on a dry fly presentation if i'm pushing waves into them i mean come on they feel those waves and they go that's not that's not normal like something's in the water that we're not used to right they're on alert at the least they're on alert they might be spooked at the worst as fly anglers and tires, we understand the value of having the right tool for the job. AvidMax.com offers over 20,000 products and the knowledge to help find the right tools for your job, whether that be at the tying bench or on the water. Listeners of the Trout Pitten Podcast receive a discount at AvidMax.com. Enter the code TROUT10, that's the number 10, at checkout to save 10% on your order. Orders over $25 ship for free so you can put more gas in your tank or beer in your cooler. For all things fly fishing and tying, elevate your game with Avid Max. Whether it's after a fishing trip or at a backyard fire, you can bet the Trout Pitten crew has a case of new trail broken heels along with us. It's honestly our favorite beer. This hazy IPA is smooth and full-bodied. Hand-selected citra hops lead to notes of bright clementine and juicy ruby red grapefruit. Broken Heels is a keeper. New Trail Beer is proudly brewed in Williamsport, Pennsylvania and delivered cold to your favorite craft beer retailer every week. At New Trail, it's not about being the best angler. It's about getting out there. So enjoy nature's moments and reward yourself for a day well fished with New Trail Broken Heels. It's Trout Bitten's favorite beer. Matt? Yeah, just taking a step back, I think those are great points. I think like starting off, I think it's good to set the seasonality piece of Mm -hmm. like the probability of spooking trout, right? I think in early season in most places with strong flows and typically less pressure because 
winter has less pressure on the fish. I think you can get away yeah. with like the, the fish are less spooky and that's just my opinion. I feel like you can get away with a little more uh, sloppiness than later in the season. So I think, I think it's good to keep that in the back of everybody's head when we're having these conversations because, you know, movement, right? If, if the velocity of the water's ripping pretty good, right? Yeah. Your movement's less disturbing to yeah. the fish because there's more cover to be had. And, and, and that I think right now, like today I was fishing and even, you know, out here, it, a lot of these things that we're discussing really yeah. come into play and can aid the angler into catching more fish. Yeah. Does that make sense? Kind of. It does. Like I'm kind of getting tired of low, clear flows mm-hmm. that's what we've still had we got a little shot of rain last week not enough and so we're kind of still in those summertime flows i'm tired of it it's been <laughs> i'm sorry but it, it's been since uh middle of july since we've had the same flows and it's the same you can catch fish but it's the same tactics in there that you have to be very careful the number one thing out there is don't spook them and then you have a chance to catch them yep. and i'm getting tired of it i'm getting tired of having to stay that far back and like yep. you said, Matt, there are certain pieces of water. I'm going to say it's 10% maybe of the river I was fishing today that was fast enough where my presence really was obscured even at 20 feet, 20, 25 feet, something like that. Everything else, I had to stay back. I'm tired of that. But seasonally, but especially like you're talking about water flows more than anything, right, Matt? Water flows and then a little, I think there's a little bit to do with we talk about repeated presentation of flies. I think mm-hmm. when you get into that er- early season part where they haven't had the repeated uh. onslaught of flies, that's kind of where my head was at with early season. You kind of have this little window where maybe you get uh. a couple weeks of they haven't seen flies and the water's high, so you can get away with some of the – we'll just stick to the spooked trout. Like there's going to be less probability of spooking trout in early season when the flows are high and they're less pressured than now or summer or July or Mm -hmm. June or May, whatever, when everybody's peak season is, um, there's, there's some season at back, you know, some seasonality to the spook, spooking of the trout. Um, you're just saying they're getting tired of seeing flies and it, you know, right. Even day to day, then they can get spooked even after one or two presentations of that, I don't know, the pink rubber legs or something like that. They'll go, nah, sure. I've seen that. Ah, that's, that's, oh, wait a second. Something's a little strange, right? Even day to day. They're educated, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's like we educate those fish and, Hmm. you know, and, and I think that's part of why trout gets spooked. That's nice. Some of that pressure, you know, the maximum pressure seems to coincide with like low clear water um, mm-hmm. out here a lot, right? Our flows are really low right now. They just came off of the only time people travel to Montana, which is <laughs> July and August. And so mm-hmm. I was out today and it's, they're tough. Um, and so yeah. I, I guarantee you, I spooked trout. I mean, I, I saw fish darting away and to yeah. your point, Dom, it's like, man, I'm, right. I'm, I'm kind of sick of it, but you know, <laughs> I think pressure, our flows won't go up, but the pressure goes down. And I think, Fish become less spooky when the pressure goes down. I like that perspective. I think spooked fish also create other spooked fish. And one of mm. the reasons that happens, I think for me Good sometimes, point. is if I'm nymphing, for example, and I don't work my way into, let's say, a prime lie, 
And I kind of move through maybe that B or C water, maybe the less desirable water to get to the best stuff. Mm. All those fish that were sitting in that outlying water, I've now spooked into the best water I'm I'm hoping to fish and have Mm. put the rest of those fish on high guard. Um, So that's one thing I always like to do is just always make sure I'm casting in front of me first and giving at least an effort to uh, catch those fish and, um, you know, alternatively of spooking them instead. Oh, I like that. I call that the uh, Paul Revere effect. (laughs) (laughs) Never heard that. (laughs) They're right. That B and C water. Honestly, honestly, my strategy in this low and clear water changes. I'll go right to the prime stuff. Kind of like Bill says, your first ha- mm-hmm. your first cast has to be your best one. I believe that wholeheartedly when we have this low clear water. I'm like, nope, I'm gonna come through it. I'm gonna get I'm trying not to spook the stuff that's down below, and I'm gonna give them my best shot in the A water. Because like you said, if you start in the B and C water, the stuff down below, eh, yeah. they go tell their friends. They're like, hey, right. something's something strange down there. Right. The and, and in these conditions, in sometimes you can't afford to fish that BC water because yeah. you need that space between you yeah. and the A water. So, and you kind of just have to do your best. Ah, that's a great point. So we're saying, you know, Josh started with the waves, which is an enormous uh, factor. It's so big. Uh, they sense it with their lateral line. We're talking about movement. They see us coming, obviously. I mean, if we can see them... Sometimes they can see us. If you're wading upstream, that is not the case. If you're wading downstream and you can see a trout, that trout sees you. I almost promise you that. Mm-hmm. The repeated presentations, really, of flies, like Matt is saying, even day to day, you know, that can kind of build up in a trout's memory bank. I often wonder if it builds up in them, like, genetically. <laughs> if year after year, and then the next, the next year class of fish, learns it i don't know sure a lot of species do though like a lot of species figure that stuff out man that's hey don't eat that pink worm wink right it just seems like they get smarter (laughs) as the years go by or else i get worse as a fisherman i don't know man but you know i'm i think something's up with it so repeated presentations of flies certainly spooks them and then i mean i'll bring up like fly line on the water if your fishing dries if you put that line over, to, let's say you're fishing a flat where the water is really, you know, really slow, and the, the disturbance on the water is going to, you know, create a few waves. You could have the perfect presentation, you know, with your fancy fly line, which is a, you know, tactical trout line <laughs> from <laughs> some company. And you could get it just right, but it's still, it hits the water and it's unnatural. And the trout will go boom, 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 boom. You'll see them going. And even if you don't see them going because the water's deeper, they're gone a lot of times. And so fly line on the water. And then it really, what's worse is a bad pickup. So you get a nice drift. You drift for 20 or even 30 feet. Wow, what a great dead drift I got. And then you pick it up. And if it goes rip, you're done. You know, you need what I call a precast pickup. Josh, you and I did a video on that. Or just let it drift out. I'd say it's probably better to just swing it out and let it, let yeah. it drag at that point than to rip it. Don't rip it off the water. No. A lot of times the trout will, uh, for me, I get to experience that visually with rising pods and how many mm. of us, you know, just look down, oh, we put the fish down. And, and yeah. did we? Yeah, we did. But why did we? Because of the sloppy yeah. cast. 
you know, to what you were saying, Dom, you pull the fly out or pull your line out sloppy. Um, mm-hmm. Those trout, when you put a pot of rising fish down, I mean, that's the telltale sign you're spooking fish with your mechanics more than anything. Yeah. yeah. If you're coming up through and you're going, oh, there's, there's five risers up there on the right side and you pick off that back one. And maybe you pick off the next one and all of a sudden the risers are gone. Do you think they stopped eating? You think the bugs were actually gone? Or do you think that you put them down because of, well, being sloppy in one way or another? Usually you put them down and we can learn from that. And some water is much harder than others. Matt, let me ask you this. I, I kind of had my own experiences out west, but in terms of boat traffic, if you have, be it rising uh, pot of trout or just actively feeding trout and you get a boat party that comes over top and you're waiting and you're trying to deal with that, how much of an effect do you see from that? It definitely happens, but I would say it's it's almost like depends on the, like those fish become acclimated to that, to where they'll shut down. And then if you do the, you know, you always hear, you know, read these books and, you know, you have these old timers sitting on the bank BSing. And if you wait long enough, you'll see the, every fish comes right back up once that boat goes Mm. by and the, you know, their net, their safety net, that's just kind of what they're accustomed to doing. And I firmly believe that they don't have any other choice. Like they would never eat the, the rivers out here. I'll talk the Missouri, for instance, it's just boat after boat, after boat, yeah. after boat. And they wouldn't be able to eat, <laughs> you know? And so I think they right. adjust and they go down and they know when that boat's passed and then they go right back up. And then unfortunately for the Wade guy, it makes it that much harder, right? Because then right. you hmm. kind of try to creep in and it becomes a challenge. That's neat to hear you say, because that was similar to kind of what I experienced is if you give it five minutes, maybe you're probably back pretty much where you started. As long as the cover is good, right? I think it's, you know, if nice. they're not going to hang in those shallows, you know, the, right. the boats are going to blow those fish out of the shallows, I think, until a different time of day. But, you know, when they're in their safety blanket with cover, they'll retreat to that cover and then they'll sneak back out once, you know, give it a couple minutes and they'll come back yeah, out. Yeah, great point. I always find that pretty interesting. I mean, what will they tolerate? We get kayaks and boats around here too. And... <sighs> It it also kind of seems day to day, and um, if there's a lot of boat traffic that day, it does seem like they'll recover quicker. And if it's the middle of the summer, I think they're kind of used to those boats, same as you're saying, maybe on the Missouri. But if it's an odd boat out of nowhere, it's like, what the heck was that? Especially if the boater, you know, has the paddles in the water and they're they're the oars in the water and they're really moving. <laughs> you know, if they're creating splashes and disturbing some kind of like, well, next spot. Sure. They don't recover. Everything is situational. That's what it always comes down to. There's no sure answer in any of this stuff that we talk about, but these are things to think about. And we talked about, you know, fly line on the water and a bad pickup, even fly line over the water. I have seen that, you know, in the spookiest or most sensitive of circumstances, the spook trout, just the fly line. Oh, I think I'm getting great casts. And then I have seen trout spook just from the line in the air over top of them. Sure. You know, and it's something we try to avoid. Yeah. So along with the fly line over the water, right? Yeah. Yeah. If they're spooking it with fly line, you know, for sure they're spooking with bobbers, weights, Mm. you know, plopping on the water, 
splashing down, you know, depending on the yeah. conditions or whatever. But we, you know, if, if that's the case, you know, the, the barbers, you're, you're done for. That's right. Yeah. If they're that sensitive, yeah, uh, that they're spooking with the fly line over the water, where you're gently True. hitting down. Yeah, yeah. Barbers are going to spook them. I like yarn a lot of times when I, yep. if I have to fish in yeah. Indy in that kind of water. Sure. Because yarn lands a lot softer. But even the splash of a nymph sure. or a split shot, we've all seen it. That doesn't mean that some trout won't tolerate it, or let's say that some trout you can get away with it, or in some sure. parts of that run, if you can cast it up and above them, they don't sense it. So you're okay. You can still fish right. that way. Right. Yeah, but it's always a factor. And that's why in these low, clear circumstances, every one of us catches a few less trout by the end of the day. You know, it's yep. it's just a spooky fish. Yeah. And the converse to that, and Grobe mentioned it kind of towards the beginning, I think is a, is a streamer presentation where it can plop on the water, make an aggressive mm. entry, and you can mm. watch a trout make a 180 turn and nice. fly right at it. Um, our friend Rocket, he used to call it ringing the dinner bell. He would like purposely <laughs> take those um, flyman fish skulls and yeah, just yeah. slam those flies on the water as hard as he could uh, against the bank and you'd watch fish just come charging out from underneath. And that's what he called it, ringing the dinner bell. That's nice. I miss Rocket. He's a good dude. Oh, yeah. So how close can you get? I mean, that's the big question. And the longer I guide, I guess, the more I realize how much anglers either overestimate or underestimate this distance. I think that's fair. I mean, we have to acknowledge it's a guess. Right. I mean, day to day, we're kind of saying, like, how close can I get to these fish? Personally, I like to fish as close as I can because I'm more accurate, because I see the water more, because I see what's below the water more, because I just have more control over everything at those shorter distances. So I'll fish as close as I can. But it's a very educated guess how close can I get to those fish? Because we've caught fish in situations just like this next one at 20 feet or at 30 feet or right under our rod tip. Or we've learned that in that next pull up, in that flat, slow, clear stuff, we have to stay further back. And so this question might really be, I'm going to say, the heart of this whole podcast. How close can we get? I mean, that's yeah. it, right? That's what we're saying. Like, how close can we get to a trout? I think all of us would like to be as close as we can because we fish best, closer. But how close can we get? It really does seem situation by situation, but I've certainly, like... Like recently I was out with a guy who was, who his tendency was to stay as far back as he possibly could. Yeah. Just like give these long arcing casts right. to these fish that I'm like, man, like there's, it's, it's nearly impossible to get a good presentation and a good drift any more than three feet to these fish that you're fishing for. Uh, of a drift, and, three feet and of they're, a drift. And they're not afraid of you. Right. Like, like you're, you're way too far away for them to know that you're there. Like you, you've got a good 20 feet to work right. with. Like, and that means that I can be, I mean, within, certainly within 20 feet of the fish mm -hmm. and still not be spooking them as long as I'm careful. Yeah, right on. Yeah, and being careful, I think you, fishing upstream, I think obviously mm. is our approach. That's it. Right. We, yeah. we're all gonna, we're all gonna fish upstream. Great point. Because that's going to give us our best stealth tactic in mm -hmm. targeting the the hole or the riffle or the run that we're doing and then and another thing i'll say is and today i got caught with it 
you got to watch where the sun is because even if you're fishing upstream, if you have a sun that's behind you, it's going to cast your shadow way high. Like, so that rod length away that Josh is talking about, that'll work if the sun's on the, you know, you almost want to be looking at the sun in order for that to Mm. cast your shadow behind you. And so I was having trouble today. That's a good point. From a stealth standpoint. And it was like, man, I'm fishing these good runs and I know it's October. I know pseudo Cleons are coming off. Why aren't I catching fish? And I got sloppy and I'm like, well, look, idiot, your, your shadow's like, it's at, in the hole, right? It's in the, it's, it's long in, the, in, in the low riffle. In the fall and so I yeah. switched and it was tough though, because I think most, nobody wants to look directly in the sun to, no. to fish because you have problems seeing. And I was stuck yes. today with that awful glare. And yeah. you can only see your, you know, really good your cider when it got like really right straight across from you. And yeah. maybe I was missing fish, but it was the, it's what I had to do. I almost was going to throw on an indie because I could see the, mm-hmm. the, the indie a little better than the Love cider. That. And so I think people would, most casual anglers would take the easy way out and just fish with the, with the nice sunlight at your mm-hmm. back, but don't realize that even if you're fishing upstream, uh, the shadow can screw you. That's great. I mean, I, I experienced something real similar, Matt. I mean, here I am in Pennsylvania or in Montana, but I was camping with my dad and we had a couple of days on our favorite bigger river and very similar. My dad was upstream and fishing in a certain way. And I was like, mm, I'm not doing it. I can't see it as well, but I'm going to fish this angle because the trout won't sense me because they don't see me. And I'm, I didn't see my presentation as well. I was fishing drives for part of the time and I was nymphing for part of the time. And just like you said, I thought about adding an indie when I was uh, nymphing, but I stayed with the tight line stuff. But anyway, I, I chose those angles. Lots of times that sun is lower. So you do get those longer shadows that you're casting onto the water. And even in ripples, I think that matters. Obviously in, in flat water and in slow water, that matters. But that's something I consider the same as you. 100%. That's what we have to do. What we're trying to do is trying to understand what the trout sees. I mean, books have been written about it, right? Okay, seriously. Mm -hmm. And so we're not going to tackle that here. But the trout can't see behind them. They see a little bit better above them than we do. But they cannot see directly behind them. And if you're not pushing waves onto them, if you're in water that's moving enough or you're moving slowly enough, They don't know you're there if you are directly behind them. So like you said, I'm almost always wading upstream. I don't care if I'm fishing streamers, dries, or nymphs. If I'm wading, it's almost always upstream. If it is downstream, it's a considerable distance that I'm casting away from those fish so I'm not spooking them. I like it. That's perfect. So we're we're being mindful. We're wading upstream. We're looking at the sun. Do you guys think that the camo or like Kellers and all that stuff <laughs> is just an added bonus to the tactic or do you feel like it's overkill? Like, do you see, do you see the guy that looks like he's duck hunting, but he's really fishing. Does, <laughs> are, are you all for that or <laughs> anti? It feels a little bit to me. Like if you're close enough for camo to make a difference, then, then likely camo isn't going to make a difference. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Like trout are sensitive. They're in the water a lot more than we are. And we know that, like we were talking about a little bit earlier, that lateral line is pretty sensitive. If you're close enough for their eyesight to be able to to tell whether 
or not your camouflage is making a difference, then, then I don't think camo is going to make a difference. And so for that reason, I don't, in general, unless you're wearing bright orange or, right. you know, some of these more bold colors that some brands are putting out. I'm going to choose earth, earth tone colors, right. but I, I don't think the camouflage makes that big of a difference when you're at the, at the range that camouflage would make a difference right with trout. I'm with you on all that. I don't think camo makes a difference, but at the same time, I do not wear bright orange, bright yellow, bright, you know, I don't even sure. wear white. I'm certainly not going to wear a red hat. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's just being smart, being wise about it. But at the same time, I don't think that I need to wear camouflage. But like you said, earth, earth tones. Yeah. Earth tones. What, you know, what kind of matches the background? Right now it's greens and browns. Um, I'm not going face paint, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's necessary. Matt, are you face paint guy? You seem like you might be a face no, paint I'm guy. No, I'm, I'm not a face paint guy. I have camo or doll colors when I'm fishing yeah. certain, like, if I'm targeting big fish, I might throw on the camo. Like, I'm not going to go crazy, to Dom's point, to catch, you know, okay, 12 yeah. to 16-inch fish. You know, not to shun those types of fish. I'm just saying, like, if I'm hog hunting, I think they, yeah. they have that... <laughs> predatory instinct that survival instinct Mm. to where they might be a little bit more keen to the spook um Mm. because that's how they got that big in the first place that's fair and so i'll be more mindful with clothing when i'm targeting big fish um yeah austin you were talking about the boats and the traffic and spooking and i've Mm -hmm. i just got a brand new drift boat this year and after being out here for eight years and seeing all the bright colored boats, I'm like, man, those have to help spook fish with all these crazy color schemes yeah. that these people are using. So I actually got a very earth toned, but I broke up what you know, it almost looks like a marble counter, my drift boat, in, in hopes that it hmm. helps, you know, when you're floating, you know, give you an extra hmm. advantage. I don't know if it does or not, but. I don't know if you guys, you guys have mostly rafts, right? You don't have hard side boats as much. Yeah, so we can't choose our color scheme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it is well summed up that if you have dull tones versus bright colors, you're going to be better off. I, I really do think yeah. that uh, if you wear a red hat, like Dom said, or you wear a bright <laughs> orange, bright green shirt, um, you're going to cause spooked fish at a distance that you may not cause had you approached them in uh, more subtle colors. So yeah, stack the deck, stack the deck. Yeah. And like Matt said, if you're going for the, the smartest trout in the system, the, the oldest and wisest, biggest trout in the system. Yeah. Stack the deck to your advantage. Go ahead. Paint your face, Matt. Go ahead. I still can't do that. That's my beard. <laughs> the beard's got it. You're fine. You got a beard. I'm good. So guys, how do you know if you're spooking trout? That's the question too. We're talking all night about, it. we don't want to spook trout. Well, how do you know if you are spooking them? What do you think? Well, I think the easy thing is you see them, right? That's that's yeah. the actually the advantage you can get is seeing them swim out from you, right? Yeah. I think everyone would agree like, oh man, I'm spooking trout again. That's the easy way. <laughs> yeah, whoops. But the hard one for me is you get people that are like, man, you know, why'd this guy, why'd you catch so many fish and I didn't? And that to me... That's a sign. If you're not catching fish, there's a lot of different reasons we've talked about in the last 50 episodes of this podcast of why you might not be yeah. catching fish, but that's also one 
to not take lightly that you might not be catching fish because your shadow's hitting the hole before you even start to fish. So be mindful of that, that, you know, right. that could be a sign too, if you're not catching them. Right. Are there waves or, I mean, they hear you, they hear your studs. Hey, you ever think about that? Every client I get coming here, I say, Hey, boot studs and a waiting staff. And once in a while people will say, well, don't you think trout can hear you coming with those boot studs? And I'm like, well, they, they hear you coming a lot more when you fall in the water and you're stumbling around. And I don't know, I've caught, all I can say is I've caught a ton of fish with those boot studs on. Maybe they hear me, but then again, it goes back to what water type are we fishing mm-hmm. and how far away are we? That's what it all comes down to. Yeah, sometimes you have those situations where you're, yeah. you can hear your boots scrape. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. When you kind of slide a little bit and you hear your boots scrape down against the rock or you put your wading staff down and you hear it. Like, like you're like, oh, I'm in pretty slow water, and you can hear your staff hit yeah. the ground. You're like, that, you know, I know the fish are hearing that because if I can hear it under <laughs> yeah. the water, then those fish are going to hear it. But in general, that's a, it's a, those things are a net positive because mostly it's, it's keeping you from splashing around a lot and it's giving you control in the water. See, another thing I've experienced um, is that it comes down to sight too. But if you uh, encounter a group of trout, yeah. uh, like a, a pod of them all really close huddled together in like low clear water and you're walking around and they're not moving or you're casting at them and they're not moving, those fish are spooked. Yeah. Because I've had that happen too where they don't swim away. Yeah. And they don't act um, like they know you're there, but they're just, they're just stuck in their spot and they're not going to budge. Those right. fish are spooked. That's one of the first things I was talking about. Just because they're there doesn't mean they are not spooked. Like you're saying, they are spooked. They almost have nowhere to go, you know? Mm -hmm. And so Matt said, like, how do we know if we're spooking trout? In low water, clear water especially, you'll see them darting away, going somewhere else. But if you do not see those trout darting away, now, Austin, you're talking about how they'll all hold. I'm going to say, like, I was fishing with my friend Brandon in Vermont one time, and we were wading up a small stream, and we could see the bottom of the river the whole time. And on day one, we were going, man, there are no trout in here, because we don't see, we don't even see any trout, trout like, spooking or darting, just Mm -hmm. getting away from us. And we would even kind of, you know, move up to a hole kind of slow, and then we'd just try to scare them, and there'd be nothing there. Yeah. But on day two, we caught fish because we just stayed back and we cast way further than we thought we needed to. I'm going to say 30 to 40 feet on a small stream, maybe 50 feet. And we just stayed way back. All of a sudden we were catching fish in the exact same areas where we weren't even getting trout to move away from us before. My point is, I think, well, I'm sure those trout the day before were just long gone before we ever got within visual range to see that they were spooking. That's how sensitive many trout can be. So just because you don't see them spooking doesn't mean that they weren't there in the first place. They're kind of three different things. You know, they'll bolt and they'll be out of there. Great. Okay, you see them. Oh, man, I spooked a fish. And then, like I just said, they, they might be so spooky, so sensitive that they are long gone before you get within visual range. And then, like you just said, Austin, they might be just just going, wait, hey, we got nowhere else to be. <laughs> this is the deepest spot, the safest spot. We're going to stay here, but we're going to lay low and we are not eating. Yeah, it's that trickle down effect too that I've talked about. You're staying at a distance or, or 
rather you're not staying at a distance and those fish are gone. Well, now those mm-hmm. fish are gone and they've spooked the fish above them. And then there those, spook, <laughs> those fish spooked the fish above them and you're just chasing them all day and you're never catching yeah, up. Yeah. That's nice. That's, well, it's not nice. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> the domino yeah, effect. That's, that sucks. The <laughs> domino it, effect. Hey, any, uh, any more stealth tips, guys? We said don't wear bright colors, right? Obviously, you're trying not to throw waves in front of you. All that. You can see the waves on the surface. For every wave you see on the surface, imagine how more effective those waves are underneath. You know what I mean? So don't push waves. For sure. Yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about it, but just look up. Know your next plan. Like, like be in the moment and know what you're going to fish right then. But, but know how you're going to get from there to your next spot. And make sure that as you're, as you're moving upstream, because we're talking about the majority of the time we're fishing upstream. Yeah. Make sure that you're, as you're moving upstream that you have an idea of, uh, of how you're going to not spook fish as you move up into the next run, the next hole, the next spot. Right on. And you're saying move up. And I, I'd reiterate that. I think all of us move upstream on a regular basis because we spook less fish. They can't see us coming. If we go yeah. just right, we can be within, I'm going to say 20 feet on a very regular basis even in low clear water, as long as that water is moving. You know, and of course, when we get in the flats, we got to stay further back, 30 feet maybe, maybe 40 feet. But really, oh man, 50 feet is really pushing it, you know, for me. I rarely feel like if I'm behind a fish, I need to be more than 30 or 40 feet away. If I'm cautious, you know, if I'm careful about those waves, all the things we've talked about, I can be within that 30 foot game. I feel very confident in saying that i like it anything else guys i think we'd covered it pretty well i would just say i think it'd be it's beneficial to when you're at your rig making a plan for the day and setting up all your gear to take take a minute and think about what type of you know what time of year is it what are the water flows you know is it sunny is it cloudy i think that's as important as uh picking what flies to use for the day, right? Like take the time, incorporate in that into your daily regimen when you're fishing. And I think you'll, everyone that's listening and does that might be uh, pleasantly surprised by the extra fish they, they might catch. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, move slowly, treat it like hunting, mm. you know, where it needs to be slow. It needs to be deliberate each movement needs to be with purpose like don't move if you think that that movement's going to scare anything Mm. and if you're working up through a spot like we've already talked about working upstream but in addition you assume that in with water we're dealing with a ripple effect which we've already kind of talked about we're dealing with waves we're Mm. we're pushing something towards whatever we're moving towards Mm. and so if that's happening then then be extremely deliberate with what you're doing like these these fish that we're chasing are built differently. They're built to be able to sense if anything's moving around them. Like mm-hmm. that, that lateral line that we talked about earlier is there to tell them if something has changed in their environment. And if and if we're pushing water towards them, if we're creating waves, then then it's just a it's a really easy tell for them to know. And so by moving just a little bit slower, by treating it a little bit like hunting, where you're like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be seen, I don't want anything around here to know that I'm here then you can be a lot more successful in your fishing. That's great advice. As much as I complained about low clear water kind of extending into this fall season, the thing I like about low clear water when it shows up every summer season is it forces me to become that hunter like you're talking about. 
And that's kind of a neat thing for yeah. a little while. It forces you to think about things that maybe you haven't thought about for the last eight months. And those same rules that Josh just spoke about apply to when we enter the stream too in our approach. You know, mm-hmm. not just when we're walking around in stream, but when we decide to step off the bank into the river, mm-hmm. before we do that, get your senses about you and realize what you're stepping into and what that may affect. Good stuff. All right, there it is. The spooky trout, what scares our fish, and how to avoid spooking trout. So success in the water really starts here. Because again, no one ever caught a scared trout. Well, we learned that Josh and Trevor did, but hey, that was a different thing. Really though, everything we talk about and focus on, the tactics, the flies, and the habits of river trout means nothing if the fish are on high alert and out of the mood to eat. Don't spook the fish. Achieving that is different from season to season. It's different in various water types, and an acceptable distance from the trout changes even with the angles by which you approach them. Being cautious, being aware, and being attentive pays dividends, so reconsider your strategies. Maybe think first about your impact on the river before you ever consider your fly choice. Be a hunter. That might be the best advice we can give. So thanks for listening, friends. All right, Matt, will you read us out? Remember, the Trout Bitten Project is a free resource for all anglers. The Trout Bitten website hosts over 900 articles with endless stories, commentaries, tactics, tips, and more. Find what you like through the top menu and through the search page. Navigate by way of the categories and tags too. Be sure to find the Trout Bitten YouTube channel, currently featuring the Trout Bitten Tips series in collaboration with Wilds Media. These are short, useful, and unique tips for your fly fishing life. Thank you for listening to the Trout Bitten Podcast. Please give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment because that really helps. Until next time, friends, fish hard, enjoy the day, and find your life on the water. spooking trout again what yeah weird (laughs) the fishermen are coming the fishermen are coming damn it i'm not scared i don't know why don't make stuff up dom do your job come on dom enough with the warm spots all right